The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been looking and began a new series looking through the account of the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us by Mark. And Mark is a wonderful 16-chapter gospel letter story that's provided less about the teachings of Jesus Christ and much more uh, about his life, of his actions, of his, his goings, about his comings and goings, and really seeing who he is. And we've been challenged of what does it mean to follow this Jesus? What does it look like uh, to follow Christ? And so uh, we've been asking that question of what does it look like for me? We talked a little bit last week that following Christ doesn't allow us to have a middle ground. Uh, we can't find that moderate middle Uh, But Jesus is calling us out to say, you're either for me, that you're aligned with me, or you're against me. There's no little sort of middle, one foot in, one foot out world for Jesus. It's sort of that idea, uh, if you think about it this way, if we say that to Jesus, Jesus, I want you, and I want you to be uh, my Savior, and God, I want you to be my God, uh, but I still want to be able to play over here in the world and enjoy some of all these things in the world uh, and really serve these other things. Think of it this way. That'd be as if a, a husband came home to his wife, and he said, sweetheart, I just want you to know that I love you, I, I'm committed to you, I wear a ring, Uh, to remind myself and the world around you that I uh, have made vows to you. And so I want to wake up to you in the morning. Uh, I want to be with you uh, each day and for the years. But there's this little pretty blonde down at the other end of the island. And I'm going to be with her a couple of times a week. And uh, we're going to be together. And uh, we're going to share our uh, intimate moments together. But I'm going to come back to you uh, after that. I just want to make sure that you're okay with that. Probably not going to go well. The audacity, the short-sightedness, the arrogance, the base stupidity that any spouse would think their spouse would allow that kind of behavior to happen. But yet we say that to our God all the time. God, I'd really like you to get me to heaven. God, I really want you to forgive my sins. God, I really want all of this stuff. I'm just going to go over here for a while and play the harlot. I'm just going to go over here and, and do these things and enjoy all of this and break your heart and break your love and break the vows that I've made to you. But I hope it's okay that I come back in the morning uh, and, do, uh, and be with you. I hope that's all right with you. If, a, if an earthly spouse would find that to be ludicrous, how much more? of an eternal, holy, and perfect Father in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you have to decide for yourself, are you going to follow me or just play with me? Are you going to follow me or are you just going to mess around a little bit with this and it's dangerous to just mess around with the eternal God of the universe? Jesus came And he penetrated into time and space. Jesus came and he penetrated into history and he lived among us to show us a couple of different things. One, the way to salvation. 
And then two, he said, I also have come so that you would follow me and be with me and be like me. That you would join yourself to me. And you would break all other allegiances. That everything else, every other love that you have in the world, you can still love your spouse. You can love your family. You can love your work. You can love all those other things. But in comparison to your love for me, it's going to look like hate. That's how much you love me. That you are that passionate for me. That everything else pales so much in comparison. That's what it looks like. And we saw last night, he walked by James and John and Andrew and Peter, and he said to them, guys, follow me. And they immediately dropped what they were doing, and they followed him. Doesn't mean they never went back to their nets and served in the family business. It never meant that they didn't go back and provide for their families, and that Peter didn't stay married to his wife and care for her. But it meant that all of a sudden, their allegiances and their priorities in the world were totally turned upside down. All of a sudden, Christ took preeminence. The call to Christ took preeminence over every other call in the world. They still were called to be godly husbands if they were married, godly businessmen in their business, godly fathers if they had children, godly friends. But the preeminent call was to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going with this. And if you think uh, I'm raising the bar uh, on us, I'm not. The bar has been raised. Actually, it hasn't. The bar is just high. It's not that Jesus is now going, okay, I sucked you in with a low bar, and now I'm going to get you and really ramp it up. The bar has always been up here. The bar has always been full and total commitment to God in our lives. Nothing else. Now, some of you are going, well, I can't do that, so I'm not even going to try. What Jesus is saying is this, I want you to sell out for me. I want you to be totally for me. I know that you're going to fail. I know that you're going to pursue less wild lovers than me. I know that you're going to wander at times, but at the heart of it, at the very core of who you are, that your passion is for me. I know you'll mess up. That's why I came, because I knew you'd mess up. So in the light of all of that, we're going to now look today at Jesus engaging, basically engaging an outcast. The title says that he's calling the sick. And what he's really doing, he's engaging an outcast. He's engaging a man, Levi, who was a tax collector. His name is Matthew that we learned from Matthew chapter 6. And that he was an outcast socially, politically, morally, uh, religiously. He was on the outskirts of his society and it wasn't a big society. In Capernaum, the town where he was, he was unloved by everybody uh, within the Jewish community. He was hated. We're going to unpack that a little bit. And Jesus came to this outcast and he said, follow me. And then he did something much more amazing that we're going to look at together. So let's look uh, at God's word uh, today and see how Jesus comes near to the outcast. And then we're going to look at responding. How do we respond? This is the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. He went out, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus heard it. And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So, Jesus comes and he's engaging this person, this person Levi. And so we're going to look at four responses today. We're going to look at the response of an outcast to Jesus. How does an outcast respond uh, to Jesus Christ? We're going to look at the response of the religious person, of the good church-going folk and the moral person. How does that person respond to Jesus? Then we're going to look at Jesus' response uh, to both of those groups of individuals. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to those things? So, Jesus has just finished. He has called in chapter 1 some of the disciples, and he's gone around and he's been uh, working and uh, teaching and going into the synagogue, and the people there in the synagogue were amazed because they said he is teaching as one who has authority. He's cast out demons. He's confronting uh, the spiritual realm of darkness in the world and establishing the kingdom of heaven and saying, my kingdom is a kingdom that, that runs out every other kingdom. It trumps every other kingdom. He was healing the sick and the lame. And he came uh, to a leper. And he came to the leper. And the leper looked at him and said, Lord, if you will, you could make me clean. Oh, can you imagine? I, I can't even imagine what leprosy is like. The physical pain and the physical part. But even more painful than that, the social and relational stigma. That you were cast out by your family to live outside the city walls, that no one would even talk to you, that when you walked down a street, you had to cry, leper, unclean, unclean, so that everybody in front of you could go, woo get away from that person. And he said, Jesus, if you will, you can heal me. And are the words of Jesus, I will be clean. And he was immediately clean. You imagine the response of that leper to Jesus and to his beautiful engagement of here, this physical and social uh, outcast in society. He went to a paralytic and he went to others and he healed them. And he was causing quite a stir, you can imagine. And then Jesus went back up. He was in the area of Galilee and he went up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and he went to this town, Capernaum, where that's where he had found Andrew and, and Peter and James and John. Uh, he was familiar with that area. That was home territory. That was his, his folk. Those were his people. And Capernaum wasn't a metropolitan area, but it was a gateway to the north. That if you were coming down from the Decapolis, the, the ten cities of the north, uh, if you were coming out of the other uh, Herod's uh, area up there, uh, you would have uh, come through this area because that was Herod Philip's uh, tetrarch up in the northern part, and you were coming now down into Herod Antipas's area. And so you would have to pay taxes as you crossed the county line, as you crossed into that area. And there were tax collectors who were there. And there were different classes of tax collectors, and Levi, or Matthew, was a tax collector who was taking up, some think he was taking up the fish tax, where if the fishermen like James and John and Peter and Andrew uh, had brought in their fish for the day, they had to pay a tax on it. But the interesting thing about Levi, Levi was a Jew. You can tell by his name. He was from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And he had taken up allegiance with the Roman government. He had decided that the best way for him to make a living uh, was to be a tax collector against his own people. 
And the way that it kind of worked in that day and age uh, was that, let's say, I'm just picking a random number, it's not a biblical number, say that he had to turn in uh, to Herod Antipas uh, $1,000 a month uh, in collected taxes. Well, he would go and collect the $1,000. Now, if he was going to make a living on top of it, he would need to overtax and to have a tax of maybe $1,500 a month so he could live on $500 or maybe $1,000 more a month or $10,000 more a month. And so the tax collectors were unscrupulous people. They took advantage of their own. Now, if you've grown up in the South and you understand anything about the Reconstruction South, there were two categories of people who were hated in the South after the war between the states. One group was a group called carpetbaggers, and those were northern uh, folk who were coming down uh, to work within the south. They were seen uh, as taking advantage of the southern uh, position and the southern situation, and they were hated. To be called a carpetbagger was a term of derision, if you were called that. I remember the story that my mom, who is from New York City, and my father, who uh, is from Birmingham, so I'm conflicted and uh, have had that in my life my whole time, of these two cultures coming together. Well, they were in Wilmington, North Carolina in the early 1960s when Wilmington was just a small port city. And Dad was a Presbyterian pastor. And they were there. They had no idea where my mother was from, but the assumption was a southern man's going to marry a southern woman. And so one of the elders of the church came and he put his arm around my mother. And he said, Maggie, we're so excited to have you and Bill here. We're tired of all these bleep carpetbaggers coming down into our church. And my mother just smiled, didn't say a thing. He figured it out later. (laughs) to his embarrassment. But it wasn't a pleasant term to be called a carpetbagger. But there was a term that was even worse than carpetbagger. And that term was called scallywag. A scallywag uh, was a southerner who had taken up allegiance with the federal government and was taking advantage of even his own kinfolk and his own people to reestablish and to become wealthy uh, on the ruin of the south. And so if you were a scallywag, you were hated deeply and profoundly. Your family was hated deeply and profoundly. You were outcast uh, from your southern communities because of your association uh, with the federal government. I'm not making a political statement, by the way. Uh, I'm simply explaining what a scallywag is. Because you see, Levi, Matthew, was a scallywag. He was a Jew who was taking advantage of the Jews and aligning himself with this horrible, corrupt, Roman, pagan government. And he was doing it for his own benefit and pleasure. And he was hated. He was an entirely different class of people. You see, when you became a tax collector uh, in that system and in that day, as a Jew, you were kicked out of the synagogue. You could no longer go to synagogue. You could no longer be a judge or to testify uh, in a court of law. Uh, You were considered unclean, and if a person entered into your home, they were considered ceremonially unclean and had to go through the ceremonial rites of cleansing before they could move forward in their lives. You couldn't accept money uh, from a tax collector because that money was seen as stolen goods, and it would make you unclean. In the Mishnah, uh, it says even in the teachings of the rabbis and the rabbinical tradition, it gave permission to Jewish people to lie to tax collectors and not be held accountable for their lie. They could break the Ten Commandments because they could lie to this scallywag, to this tax collector. That he was kicked out of all of the social orders of the day. And even his family bore the brunt of that social excommunication. 
That's Levi. He was the butt of the jokes. He was the illustration to show what was wrong in the world, to show the evil upon evil. And Jesus came by and said to him, You, Levi, follow me. Levi, I want you to associate yourself with me. Now imagine how Levi would have responded. No other rabbi would ever speak to him that way. Every other rabbi would have walked by and said something to the effect of, go to Sheol. May you be anathemaed. May the curses of God rain down on you and on your family. And would you be destroyed for who you are? Can you imagine being that guy? Well, that'd be fun to walk into a party. Be great to have him as a next door neighbor. Be great to have that guy hanging around in your club or in your gated community. You got that guy with you. And you think he knew it? Of course he did. He knew the stigma. It didn't just land on him. It stung to the very core. It identified him for who he was. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And look at how he responded. He dropped everything and followed Jesus. When he saw who Jesus was, that Jesus was a rabbi of a different tradition. He was a rabbi and a teacher of a different law. Because he understood some law that said basically this, now I'm coming to you and I want you to follow me. I want to be in relationship with you. And how did Levi respond? Levi jumped for joy. He ran to Jesus and basically said, I'm all in. Everybody else who has been religious, everybody else who's spoken about this holy and wonderful God, everybody else has said, I'm going to hell because of who I am and what I do. What's different about you? What is it about you? Because the word follow there is a word that's only used of disciples. And it's a word that's pregnant and filled in a way that really means a faith which costs you something. And so what Levi was doing was he was saying, I believe in who you say you are. And I am going to give my life to you. I am going to, with reckless abandonment, align myself with you. Because what I've found in the world is absolutely nothing else. And what I find in the law, this beautiful law of God, I find nothing but condemnation and failure. And Jesus walks in and says, follow me. And he came alive. Maybe for the first time. Maybe that's some of you. You've grown up in a religious culture. You know the law, you know the religious forms, you know the traditions, and you've rebelled against them in your life because all they seemed to bring to you was death and the stench of condemnation. And maybe you're here this morning, and I'm so thankful that you're here today because I want you to be introduced to a Savior who says to you, I fulfilled the law so that you don't have to. I came to you in your brokenness. I'm coming to you in your scallywagness, if that's a word. And I'm coming to you in all your messed upness. And I'm coming and saying, I want to love you. Follow me. How are you going to respond when you just meet the most remarkable person you've ever met in the world? How are you going to respond? I find it amazing when you look on Facebook or Instagram and all these and you go around the SEC uh, to the football schools and Tim Tebow's around. When they see Tim Tebow on the SEC network, you want to know what all the little girls are doing and all the guys are doing. Ooh, it's Tim Tebow. 
And they get pictures with Tim Tebow. And they show pictures of themselves with Tim Tebow. And they get little likes. And everyone goes, oh, that's so cool. They got to see Tim Tebow. And it's just awesome because you get to see Tim Tebow. Or what if the, if the, go, well, yeah, the governor of the state walked in? Go, this is awesome. I got to be with the governor of the state or the president of the United States. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. If you get to meet the president of the United States, that's an honor in our country, by the way. And you would say, I got to meet the president of the United States. And I respect the office, and I'm going to tell all my friends that I got to see the president of the United States. Levi got to see Jesus. And you know what he did first? Jesus, come to my house for a banquet. I'm inviting all my friends. Because I just met the most remarkable person I've ever met in my life. And my life is radically transformed because all I did was follow you. And I want all of my friends, because all of my friends, you know who I get to hang out with as a social outcast? I get to hang out with the other social outcasts. I get to hang out with all the other marginalized people in the world because the good religious church folk who go to synagogue on Saturdays, who go to church on Sundays, who go to church on Sunday nights, and go to church on Wednesday nights, they won't have anything to do with me. Because good, proper southern Christian folk just don't hang out with folks like that. And he said, but I know a group of people who would love to meet you because they have no hope. And what they've been presented in church does not give them any hope. And he, he cooked a feast for him. And he invited him into the home. Have you ever met someone like that that so transformed your life that you wanted everybody to know him and meet him? I've met four people like that in my life. Three of them are seated on the front row. One's at Clemson. Man, when you get married and you get to introduce your bride to someone, that's an awesome thing. This is my wife. Because I love my friends would go, how the heck did you get her, McCutcheon? And I'm like, yeah, this is awesome, isn't it? I remember meeting, and Lisa and I were at a concert one time, and we met a guy who was a Christian from my college, and I wasn't a Christian in college, and he knew Lisa was a Christian because they'd met somehow through FCA at Clemson and Presbyterian College, and he saw me with Lisa, and he saw Lisa, and he goes, Lisa Clary, it's great to see you, and you're with Bill McCutcheon. (laughs) And he looked at her like, wow, you've backslidden. (laughs) But when you get married, you're just like, I can't wait to introduce you. And those of you who have children and those of you who are expecting, this is a phenomenon, if you haven't experienced, that is so incredible. When you hold your child for the first time, what do you do with them? You parade them around and go, this is my kid. This is my son. This is my daughter. I want you to introduce you to the most incredible person that I've ever met in the world. They have radically transformed me from this moment on. And that's what Levi was doing with Jesus. He was saying, I've met the most incredible person And it happens to be God himself who came down and he wanted to love me when everybody who should have been wanting to love me has outcast me. The one who shouldn't want to love me has. Oh, how amazing. And he put Jesus at the head of his table, which is interesting there in the Greek, that it says they dined with Jesus. It should have said they dined with Levi, because in the house, uh, it would have been set up in a U shape. The table and all would have been a U, and at the head of the table would have been the head of the house. And look who was sitting at the head of the house. It was Jesus. Levi knew he wasn't the head of his house anymore. And he invited all these other people in, and they were amazed in the presence of the Nazarene presence of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the King of Kings. That's the response of those who know they're lost. 
The response of the marginalized and the outcast is to gravitate towards Jesus, to run to him. Because what they find is what we sang about. You find in the arms of Jesus 10,000 charms. You find an embrace within the arms of your Savior. That's the beauty of the outcast coming to Jesus Christ. Now we've got to hit the gas pedal and move on to how do other people respond to Jesus? Well, how did the how did the religious good southern church folk respond? And I know that I keep saying southern folk, and that's an assumption upon uh, 90% of you who are Midwestern and Northern. Uh, but you're down south, so you're in my backyard, so deal with it. You're now southern. Uh, but how did he deal with good religious folk? Well, or actually, how did the religious folk deal with him? He said they stood on the outside. Because they couldn't go into the house, you remember. Because if they went into that house, they'd be ceremonially unclean. And they would need to cleanse themselves and go through the law in order to make themselves righteous again. And so they stood on the outside. And they said, who is this man who associates himself with sinners and publicans? Who is he? He can't be God. He can't be our Messiah. Because if he was our Messiah, who we have created in our own image, that we have created in our religious, moral uh, image, he would come and he would look just like us. An aristocracy of Christianity. That he would stand with shoulders back and arms folded, and he would look with condemnation over all of those people who messed up, because we don't mess up like that. We go to church on Sunday, and we go on Sunday night, and we say, yes, ma'am, and we tithe, and we tip our hats, and we raise our children in the right way. We don't let them associate with other folks. Uh, We do all the right things. We know our catechism, and we know our Lord's Prayer, and we use the King James Version. Anybody else who doesn't? We don't have anything to do with them. We want our churches pure. We want our politics pure. We want our races pure. We don't want any of this intermingling of all these other things because we understand the law and church. Praise God. Amen. Pass the plate. And they stood on the outside and they judged him and they hated him. And in those moments were the very seeds of the crucifixion. How can we get rid of this Savior? How can we get rid of this man? Because he is messing up our church. He is inviting in all of these people who don't look like us, who don't agree with some of our political views, who don't agree with some of our moral views, who have all the terrible reputations in town, and we've worked really, really hard to get our church to be a good, respectable church. And these folks are going to mess it up, and he's leading the charge. So we got to get rid of him. And eventually they killed him to try to get rid of him. You see, that's what a moralist has to do to a gracious, loving Christ. That's what a self-righteous religious person has to do. They have to kill Jesus. You have to get rid of him because you have to determine that you're your righteousness, that you are your savior, that the law is your savior, and that this Jesus who comes in and says, I've fulfilled the law. I am the temple. You no longer need to have the temple. You no longer need the sacrificial system. You no longer need the kosher laws. You no longer need any of those things. Because I've arrived on the scene. I am the fulfillment of it all. They don't know what to do with him. And so they cast him out and they try to kill him. 
That's what religious people do to a gracious Jesus. They say he's unclean because he hangs out with unclean people. When isn't it fascinating that the ones who shouldn't have known who Jesus was, they weren't studied in the Old Testament. They hadn't read of the coming Messiah, maybe. They knew Jesus on the spot and followed him. And the ones who knew inside and out what the Messiah was supposed to be like, that he came and he cast out demons, that he came and he gave sight to the blind and he caused the lame to leap and he gave sight to the blind and he gave voices to the numb and that he brought life to the dead, that they saw that already enacted out and they went, nope, can't be him. Because he doesn't look like the one we've manufactured in our minds. And they rejected him. Religious people will always reject Jesus. They always will. Because the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. If you want to avoid Jesus, go get really, really moral. Go get very behavioral. Because then you can say, there's not much. When we have these whole times of confession, that's really hard for a good religious person. Because you don't know what to confess. You don't know that there's anything to confess. Except maybe you associated with one of those people who really does need to confess. You don't need Jesus. That's how a religious person responds to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Fascinating. Jesus responds by saying this. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came to call the righteous. I came to not call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus basically said this to the religious person. You think you're already righteous and you don't need me. I didn't come for you because you've determined you don't need me. I came for those who desperately know their brokenness and their lostness and they know their need of a savior. I came for those who are sick and who are broken. And isn't it fascinating? Who is actually more lost in this story? The sinners and the tax collectors or the religious leaders of the day? I'd argue that it's the religious leaders of the day were more lost because they didn't even know they were lost. Do you think that, that Levi, Matthew, knew he was lost? Absolutely. His response to Jesus shows it. Jesus is drawn to the brokenhearted. He is drawn to the marginalized. He is drawn to the ones uh, that society says have no hope. He is drawn to the ones that the church even says shouldn't be around. He's drawn to those people. And he goes and he enters into their house. And he says, by my presence in your unclean life, I will make you clean. I will become unclean so that you will be made clean. Isn't that an awesome reality? That Jesus wasn't afraid to touch lepers. He wasn't afraid to touch bleeding women. He wasn't afraid to touch the dead. He wasn't afraid to do all of those things because he said, I have to go and touch you. I have to get dirty. I have to. He who knew no sin has to become sin on your behalf or you will never become the very righteousness of God. Let me go to the cross for you. Let me become your sin. Give it to me. Quit saying that you don't have it and you don't have a need for me. Come to me and let me be your savior is what he says to those who are marginalized. And then we'll end with this. How are we supposed to respond? First, how should you respond to Jesus? If you're here today and you've been playing around with one foot in both worlds, 
I challenge you before God. Quit playing with fire. Determine for yourself today who you will follow and throw your full allegiance that way. Who is this Jesus? He is the very Son of God. He is God Almighty coming to our midst and He is inviting you to follow Him. And what He's saying is not, I'm going to give you this horrible life. you got to lose out on everything. You don't get to drink before you're 21. You don't get to have sex before marriage. You don't get to cuss. You don't get to speed. You don't get to cheat. You don't get to do all those things. And that's how we look at life. Don't you love it how people describe the Christian life? That this life is the only heaven that a non-believer is ever going to experience and the only hell that a believer ever will. And we wonder why no one wants to come to faith in Jesus. Hey, I'd like to invite you to someone. It's Jesus Christ. He's going to make your life a living hell. But you get heaven in the end, so it's all good. Levi would have said, let me introduce you to this one who gave me life now. He became my friend when my family abandoned me. He became my family when my friends left me. He became my spouse when my spouse left me. He became my God, and he drew near to me. That's the invitation today to you. So would you come to this Savior? And then the other question is, how are we going to respond to the ones who Jesus loved? How are we going to respond to the ones that Jesus loved? I was reading with um, Will last night. He sent me an email article. And the question and the premise of the article was, would Jesus uh, be in a fraternity house? Some of you are going, of course he wouldn't. I don't know where else he'd be. He may be in the religious studies area to try to convince the folks that he is the real historic Jesus. He'd be in the biology and chemistry departments saying that it wasn't by chance or evolution, but it was by the divine decree of my father. And you're lost. He'd be in the sorority houses. He'd be at five points. He'd be in the dorm rooms. He'd be in all the places where the church is abandoned. He'd be in Hollywood. He'd be in D.C. He'd be in New York. We wonder why we have no impact on the world anymore. We've withdrawn ourselves from all of those who need a savior. And Jesus is inviting us to get back in and get messy. Wonder what would happen if we got a couple of buses together next week and we went around Beaufort County and we invited every person of ill repute, that we invited folks from different social classes and races. We invited folks who were homosexual and folks who were broken in addiction under sin. We invited some incredibly wild liberal Democrats and some confederately conservative gun-toting Republicans. <laughs> we invited all these mix of those people and we brought them in and we'd emptied them out right there. Would you invite them to sit next to you? Would you invite them to your home after church? And say, my Savior invited me, an unclean, dirty outcast, into his life. I invite you into mine so I can introduce you to that Savior. Or would we stand and go, what are those people doing at our church?
God, we thank you that you entered into our night, that you entered into our brokenness and shame, and you have given us glory and life and meaning, that we praise you and give you thanks. For those who are here today who have not responded to that call, would they respond today? Father, move in their hearts now. Would they give their lives to you fully today and follow you? And those who've wandered off, Father, draw them back to follow the Savior. And Father, for all of us, would we be a church and a people whose hearts are broken by the brokenness of the world around us? And that we would be like our Savior. And we would speak words of life and joy and hope to a broken and marginalized world. We praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.